wild, get wild, get wild in the country with snakes in the grass is absolutely free. Wild, get wild, get wild in the country. Hello, 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 hello. With me in the studio, I have Marsha and Sylvia. Hello. Hello, Dookie. Yay, hello, Dookie listener. And we also have a special guest in this week, John Taylor. But not the John Taylor that you may think of. Yeah, I don't know who I'm supposed to be thinking of. Who? Well, he, the bass player of Durren Durren. This chat that we have in is far more exciting. A musician, a manager, an artist, a remixer, a keyboard player. He does everything. He's very wonderful. And can I just also say that I loved John Taylor from Duran Duran with a love that was deep and abiding. A very aesthetically pleasing chap. Very beautiful. And he knew how to work a headband. To be fair, though, is headband... Excellent. Something really to aspire to. Headband the, glory, if you will. At the time, yes. And uh, he also knew how to work a pair of shoulder pads. It was which, the 1980s. Which is tricky. Yes, it was the 1980s. It was very tricky. And he managed to pull it off in the jungle, which is even more of a feat. True. Shoulder pads and palm trees and glowing in the sun. Not exactly a classic combination. Yeah, he sounds like a real catch. Uh, so what you're saying, Dookie, is that me and Sylv this week are superfluous. You're not superfluous to me, but because we're going to be concentrating on the lovely John Taylor, a man who can spin a yarn or three with great ease. He's a top lad. It means that we may have to reserve our banter and banal explorations of the day-to-day life for occurring to the three of us respectively for next time. Superfluous. It really is a good word for you, isn't it? It's a good word for me, Dookie, and I've heard parts of the interview and it's a good interview. So I hope the two of you very much enjoy the Dookie Radio Show. All of London, even the handbags, are swinging to the sides of the Dookie Radio Show. The Dookie Radio Show does not broadcast on a frequency that exists. However, it's available for download every Monday if you're up for it. And oh, heads up, you are. I felt something move, and I think it was in the trouser department. Mr Taylor, what is your middle name? Taylor. Well, my name's actually John Taylor Robson. Right. Um, but for tax reasons, no, I'm joking. <laughs> I just thought John Taylor had a bit of a more kind of a flow, so I kind of just Is it really Robson? Uh, any relation to the Robson and Jerome gang? I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> well, musically, you seem to come from different mm, places. Not. If you were forced to describe your occupation in one box, the kind of box that when you have to deal with 
customs details when you go to certain countries. Yeah. You know, customs and declaration forms and, and all of that. What would you put down? I'd just put artist. That's a nice all round all round everything. All round everything. Because then if you go music producer, because I'm not just doing music production, I'm doing, you know, management. I'm an act myself. Uh, you know, I run a record label. I did it. So I just used the word artist. It just covers everything. And in terms of your gestation as a musician, we'll soon be talking about your autobiographical playlist and the, the songs nice. that have helped to shape you and make you the person that you are today. What was the, the first instrument that you started to tinker with? What was your gateway to music in terms of instrumentation and any types of lessons that you may or may not have taken? Drums. Drums. From the very, very, very beginning, drums. Um, you know, even before I kind of picked up drums, I mean, if my mother he was here right now, she would tell you I was forever drumming on the, the kitchen table. I was forever like, you know, with pencils hitting off the, you know, the glasses and, you know, forever kind of doing it. I can't, I've always got to kind of do something. It was always the drums for me, 100%. And did you have a, a drum kit as a, as a teen yeah, or I pre-teen? Had- I did have a, a drum kit. I mean, it's probably the worst drum kit, one of these kiddie drum kits. Um, I had no idea what I was just bashing it, but I loved it. I just loved the sound. And then um, because my father was in the forces, um, we moved to a place called Catrick. And it was the first school I went into that had music lessons. And so we got, you know, I chose the drums. We got some lessons on the drums. I absolutely loved it. So it was the first time I had some kind of lessons on the drums. And... Did you get to a specific grade or level in um, your percussion endeavours? Not, because I didn't know anything about, um, because obviously at school, I mean, this is like, you know, still primary school. So we knew nothing about kind of grades and there was tests and things like We just thought it was, you know, a, a kind of enjoyment. I didn't really know about that you could actually do grades for drums till like a lot later. You know, I thought it was all just piano that had all their grades and stuff. True. Yeah, yeah. It, it tends to be what you associate with it. Now, for uh, listeners out there, uh, they should realise that your main instrument now, as a fully formed adult, not the drums, but keyboards primarily. Yeah. And how did that transition take place? I mean, it was, uh, I mean, with keyboards, it's a necessity, i.e., you know, you can't, because obviously we became obviously dance music producers. And it's, uh, you know, the live drum with dance music was gone. It was all about programming and, um, you know, using the keyboards and, you know, sampling the keyboards. And so obviously it just went off into the more digital kind of, you know, synthy kind of stuff. And obviously the drums, no one was recording live drums. So it was all kind of programmed. So, yeah, I kind of left all the kind of that, that kind of behind. Were you ever tempted to dig out a drum kit? And record loops to then add into the dance stuff that you I mean, were involved we have, with. We have done in the past. There's been quite a few tracks. I mean, especially when, you know, I remember kind of, especially kind of the mid-90s, I was looking at particular sounds of drums and I couldn't find them. Because obviously back then there was no such thing as sample packs. You just had the drum machine with that standard snare, the 808, the 909. But I wanted a particular sound. So I remember borrowing a drum kit, setting all the mics up, and just recording loads of like different hits and... And we still use some of them nowadays, you know, some of them particularly, you know, were recorded back then. Have you got any floppy disks still? Oh, my God. You know, I've got whole, whole boxes because obviously, especially with the um, the Akai uh, early samplers, the nine, the, was it the 950? The 950, and then it, when it moved on to the 1000, things got really serious. Yeah, I, I mean, 
I didn't like the 1000. I liked my, I think when it came into its zone was the 3000 XL. That was a super posh, all singing, all totally. dancing one. Because you could get your extra filter boards and um, extra RAM. It was like, oh my word, you know, a lot easier to use. Do you still use it with any I of your remixes? Really? So I still use it now. Despite the fact that with uh, access to everything that you have in the world of Logic or Pro Tools, mm. that you're still going yeah, I mean, old school with the sampler, I think, speaks volumes. Yeah, I mean, I will use a combination of both because I find if you want that nice, big, crunchy sound with the drums, I think the Akai is brilliant for it. You know, things, and that's why a lot of the hip-hop producers like using things like the MPC and... Because um, the drums is just a lot more crunchy. I think a combination of both. Um, but I think now, because it's everything's in front of you now, it's kind of a lot of hard work kind of programming the sampler and time-consuming because everything's fast now. When someone wants a remix, you've got like five days to do it, mm. done and dusted. So you don't really have a lot of time now to kind of t- tinker with stuff. Having a sampler in which you have knobs and very simple menus that are... That are- yeah. intuitive means that you can get stuff done super quickly I think it's brilliant that it's 2015 yet technology from the 90s and early noughties it's, it's, really, it's coming back and mm. the stuff sounds good as well I think in, in a way because the sampling rates and the bit rates mm. are not as sophisticated and as high resolution as they are now they every sample in a way becomes an interpretation yeah and the unniceties add character. Oh, big time, big time. You know, but the thing is, I think nowadays you've got two kind of people nowadays, production-wise. You've got the ones that don't really care um, how it sounds. You just want to put a track, put it out. Then you get the ones that are really kind of over the top um, who don't actually have that knowledge. They've just been watching loads of YouTube videos. And, mm. You know, we get it with the DJ because I teach at a DJ school as well. And we get a lot of guys coming through. Oh, yeah, you're not a DJ unless you play vinyl. In a certain kind of, yeah, I, I mean, that is kind of, but it doesn't mean you're not a DJ. I still think it's kind of the point where you, how good are you with what you have? You know, if you, it doesn't matter what it is, what can you do with it? You know, that's, I always kind of think of it like that. But you get a lot of these people just, you know, sheep. A mutual friend and musical partner in crime, Dave Bobarossa said it best. Mm. Equipment is overrated. Yeah. <laughs> that said, he whinges about gear more than most oh, yeah, people yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah. And what's the drum kit like? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You grew up as a, a, a forces brat. Yeah. How many schools did you go to between birth and the dawn of adulthood? Um, I probably went to about, I mean, generally we used to move every kind of two years. Um, two years rather than four? So oh, no, you... no, no, every two, every two years. There's right. only a couple of instances where... We were longer there than, you know, for two years. Um, generally, it's every, like every two years. Um, so, lots. Over what geographical spread? Just UK or oh, no, no, further no, no. afield? I mean, Germany and... Germany, all mm. over Germany. Um, Hong Kong, Cyprus, uh, Scotland, England. So, we, we did move we around quite a lot. Where's home? London. I mean, that's a, th- a great thing about the city mm. is... is y- once you're here, you're a Londoner in order mm. just to get through the, the the nitty and gritty of the city and the good and the bad, you have to absorb it. And it, mm. it absorbs you. And it's a, a great filter for people from around the world and particularly those who have had no fixed 
you know, set hometown. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it must be a weird thing because ultimately in this country in particular, but around the world, people like to pigeonhole, mm. you know, where are you from? What's your hometown? And I presume you probably weren't born in London. No, no, not at all. I, I mean, the thing is, I felt like I've always belonged to London because obviously growing up, you know, I was into punk and Neuromat and everything. I knew more about London before I even moved down here. I haven't been here, but I knew more about it than most. Um, so I always felt like there was always a, a affiliation with kind of London. So the first opportunity, I moved straight down here. I mean, if you're stuck on a base somewhere in industrial Germany yeah, and you're British, naturally you look to the big cities and that's where all your information is well, going to be coming from. Well, no, because what kind of got me, because obviously our escape was music and all the music that we were listening to and all the fashions that we were kind of getting into was all from kind of London so it was really kind of through music and fashion that we kind of discovered London really we knew it was a capital and but we didn't really know what it was but it wasn't until music and fashion that we actually really knew what London was about. Before coming into the Dookie Radio Show studios you were asked to provide six autobiographical playlist tunes that have helped to shape you to make you the person that you are today. The first song that you selected is Problems by the Sex Pistols. Obviously, Sex Pistols need no introduction. And Problem isn't the obvious choice that a Pistols fan would choose. And for that reason, I really like it. Any reason why that particular track from Nevermind resonated with you? Obviously, you know, I mean, I was obsessed with that album and... You know, and the tracks you'd always hear, and they're amazing tracks. I love God Save the Queen and Anarchy, are great tracks, but so did everyone else. But it was that track that the majority of kind of people didn't really know, but I just thought that one had a lot more kind of aggression and a lot more kind of freestyle in that track, which I really liked. Um, more so than the rest of them. Um, and, it, it, and I kind of like the, how unconstructed that track is, really. If you listen to it, and it does feel like an afterthought on yeah. the album, and that's this what I really like yeah. about it. And but the the, the the lyrics are so aggressive, and it is, you know, he's angry doing them vocals, and I kind of like, and you can feel it. Um, whereas you used to get a lot of the punk stuff, and they were like singing angry, but they weren't really angry. But he was; you could hear it. Absolutely, probably quite frustrated with having had to put something down really quickly yeah. that yeah. wasn't hatched, and. Regardless of the whole punk ethos that is naturally linked with Sex Pistols, um, that album is so well produced. Amazing. Layers of guitars, the drums sound great. It's an amazing rock album. Yeah. It's an amazing album, full stop. Steve Jones' guitar work is is tight as as you could possibly want it. And it's. um, Whereas Problem does sound like. Well, it's almost as though the title came about with the fact that they had a problem and needed to do another track in but it's, it's, many hours. But if you listen to it, you can almost hear little movements of the instrumentation that's actually from the other tracks. And they're just taking little snippets. It's almost like uh, old school sampling. You can see they've just taken bits of little ideas from other tracks and put it together. A patchwork. Yeah, basically it's what it sounds like. Because in it, I mean, I can hear little tinkers of the riff from God Save the Queen. Just slight. Uh, you know, yeah. Same as the drumming. You know, I, th- I think it sounds a bit like a bit like anarchy. You know, so yeah, I think it's just a last minute, but it's great. I love it. I have the pleasure of working with Paul Cook a 
couple of years ago on a project and he was telling me how he met a musicologist who was going into deep analysis about the tempo variations which feature on the Nevermind the Bollocks album. You know, it's by no means consistent. And as a result, Cook, who can play to a click amazingly well, will, on projects that he's working on these days, will ask to deliberately have the click taken out of the last half of an appropriate given song just to bring back the urgency and the human factor, which you hear loads of on Nevermind the Bollocks. I think people overanalyze that album. Um, you know, they almost think it was like uh, magically put together, loads of time spent, but it wasn't. I mean, basically, those guys weren't even accomplished musicians, but what they did was unique. They, they come at a completely different angle, and you can hear it. So people can analyse it. Oh, yeah, they did, but they had no idea what they were doing. They were just going in the studio and just recording some great music. Where did you first hear the, the Sex Pistols? What oh, was your first exposure to I them? I was about eight years old, so there must have been 78. And obviously the punk explosion that happened. I was into superheroes at that point. But I remember seeing them on TV, and I was never really interested in music. And I'm like, I, I, It wasn't the music, it was their look. It kind of got me interested. And then we moved to a place in Aberdeen and it was quite secluded, but there used to be these old punks, older. They must have been like maybe 18 or something. Um, and they used to hang around not far where I used to live. And I used to have to have there, get up playing punk music. And I just used to hang around and just listen to this music. And they started giving me tapes and letting me come up to listen to stuff. And, and it was through there, really. And it was, it was um, I think it was Anarchy. It was the first thing I really listened to. thought, oh, wow. I like music. Um, so, yeah, it was that one. Any siblings growing up? I had two sisters, but none of my family... I mean, my, my parents, I think they had an Elvis record. <laughs> and I think they had uh, uh, a tape of White Christmas by Bing Crosby. Right. That was it. I mean, was in a way, that, in the house. That, may, that track did, I suppose, become a... Or could have been a gateway to David Bowie and their lovely yeah. du duet. So in a way, those punkers that you met, the old 18-year-old punkers that you met yeah. in Scotland, became the, the classic older brother who introduces you yes, to everything. Yes, I mean, big time. And I think they were really... Um, they liked the fact that I was really interested and I wanted to know, oh, who are these? And, and, they, and the, the, these guys weren't the normal kind of... They really knew what they were talking about and the information used to give me and there's this punk band and the Sex Pistols and, you know, and they used to give me these tapes and I, they really kind of educated me what punk was and what it was all about and um you know and they weren't the kind of punks i'd be spitting on the street and but that th was really good that was my introduction to music and my obsession all these years later so it all started from from the pistols in a way yeah so from the pistols to dance masterworks that mm. you're involved with writing but also remixing and yeah. that's quite a journey and all the reason more to move on to your second track adam and the ants plastic surgery oh, that's right obviously an amazing gateway between punk mm. and the whole new romantic new wave world it was about probably about 79 it was with the dirk album because these guys had got i remember them playing this record it was really different it was on tape as well and it was adam and Ants, the dirk so it must have been towards the end of 79 and it was a dirk album basically i remember um one of them had this kind of, i don't know where they got it from but it was plastic surgery and I have no idea where they got it from and then it wasn't until they told me about the Jubilee film and things like that and I remember watching it 
and they did that and I thought oh my word that's amazing I love it it's just so aggressive and, and lyrically it was different as well um, and I thought it was quite quirky quite funny um, it's a plastic surgery and that was the one I used to play it really loud because it was really aggressive in the drumming on it I absolutely loved it take your time to Totally loved it more so than a lot of the other punk records. Even um, you know the damn the drumming. People used to go on about how he was. Uh, I didn't get. It. I didn't get him. You know, I, I, to me it just sounded like it was banging away. And it wasn't until I heard plastic surgery. I thought, oh, you know, drums. So it's plastic surgery. Plastic surgery. Fantastic. In, in a way, you can hear the early incarnation of that tribal drum sound yeah, yeah. you know it, it is there it hadn't been worked out obviously this was a number of years before Bob Rosso had been urged to to go that route by McLaren the drums are really 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 up front and come from a completely different field a different planet some of the the hi-hat patterns yeah. are, are really quite non-standard and also I think on that track as well the drums are really up front Mm. on that track and he's really you know um, I think I think Adam Alton was a clever man about making the drum just as important as every other instrument on it whereas a lot of the kind of bands I felt um, especially the punk bands it was just a timing thing um, and I think 79 was kind of a, a transitional period as well because a lot of the punk records I was listening to I thought, this is pretty shit but I thought a lot, you know I was getting a lot of the punk records and you know a lot, they were just shit uh, you know the instrumentation, and to and, and I think it got to that point where it wasn't really it was a contrived message, and the music was very contrived, and you could feel that they're not really kind of punks. They they didn't do really, they're just jumping on something. There was a lot of that stuff coming out, um, and obviously the majors then obviously jumped on it, and there's all these plastic punk bands coming out and um, great little pop tunes, but they weren't really punk. They didn't really have that. True. I mean, I think it, it's there were certainly a lot of people who had come from the the pub rock world mm. uh, as well as the glam rock world, and tons who grew up listening to and copying the enemy. You yeah. know, I'm sure that a lot of people in those plastic punk bands could name all the Pink Floyd albums and a bit of yeah. Yes and Emerson, Lake and Palmer. But when the spirit of '77 was in full force. Suddenly, it was fuck the progs, yeah. up the punks. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I kind of like that, and I know that transitional period is really important for it to be able to have longevity and to, you know, every style of music kind of, you know, it. What's what I'm looking for? It evolves, and I knew you could hear that happening, and I liked where it was going, um, with a bit more kind of lot poppier hooks and things like that, and I did like where it was going. It wasn't all about the aggression for me, but you could see the bandwagoners. You could see them. I think there's um, the one thing about that particular era of, of music and for, for want of a, of a much better phrase, the whole kind of punk scene is music became stripped down suddenly in, in a way that record 
the garage bands from mm. the the mid sixties and the, you know the first British wave of of bands, you had perfectly formed instead of two minutes fifty because the songs were faster, kind of one yeah. minute fifty gems where it, it, these are short, sharp, to the point tunes. Mm. And at its best, the, the the great punk songs are just that great songs. Yeah. At its worst, it's shit. And people jump in on the bandwagon, and um, but I think any musical movement you're going to have of elements course. of that. I mean, I think it's important to have them bandwagon to 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 make it evolve mm. um, and the good stuff to really come through. But the other thing I think why the punk scene was really good um, to me, I didn't think making music or releasing was accessible. You know, those people that were releasing records and in bands, they were like these special people. Mm. You know, and I'm not one of them. But it wasn't till punk come along. And I think because of that, it kind of showed people that, look, anyone can do it. And I think because it changed the face of music, people who wouldn't normally put a band together have probably gone, look, we can put a band together as well. And those bands, that you know, I have to name a few, you know, The Clash and things like that, you know, changed the face of kind of music as we know it. Um, and I just think it gave it gave people the, come on, like, get up, look, you can do it as well. Forget about these progressive things, these amazing musicians. You don't have to be an amazing musician. But it helps. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Weird question. Around this era, you were spending a lot of time in kind of military settings. Mm. Did you have enough freedom to be able to adopt the punk look or oh, ethos in any way? I could do what the hell I wanted. Right, I, so I you... was an absolute. I mean, no, I was a bit of a. I did rebel. You know, I. You know, I. I didn't like doing family things. I didn't like playing with other kids. You know, I wasn't into that. Um, I was always off doing my. I've always been off doing my own thing. Um, you know, and I. Yeah. Do a little punk. Now I did get told off a few times, um, walking around and just trying to be a punk, and I wouldn't hang out with kids my age, you know, because they're just like kids. Even though I was a kid myself. <laughs> Those um, ancient eighteen-year-old people with their great tracks. Yeah, you <laughs> those know, are the ones you want to hang out with. When I was at school, they, they, you know, I found you know quite a few like-minded kind of people the same age as me, and and it was really good. It was really good that kind of time, you know. And we stood out. We loved that kind of thing. Oh look, those punks. And to look at us, we probably weren't really punk, but we thought we were, you know. If you go back to that era and the artists who made the music mm. and who were the more, I don't want to say important, but the more high-profile exponents of it, mm. the Clash, the Pistols, the Damned, not really subversive in how they looked. You could introduce Johnny Rotten to your... Folks, well, really, this was it. slightly I mean, spiky hair, but yeah. the that crusty Mohican, yeah. oh my word, job stoppers left, right and centre. Not too many punk bands who are household names really had that look. No. Um, and I think that was quite, I mean, you know, you'd see the kind of punks walking around with, the, you know, the standard issue, you know, safety pin jacket. Duh, duh, duh. I was into the other bits and, you know, watching bands like The Clash and that come through and the way they kind of looked kind of, you know, it wasn't about having a Mohican and green hair and earrings. There was other things going on that you could do and things we could get away with. We could still go to school thinking, we're, you know, dressing like punks, but not being picked up for being looking like a punk. And I think that was quite important. I think the fact that the Clash had embraced Americana in a way and yeah. uh, Paul Simonon and who many, many times during the, the Clash's career would have a bit of a nod to James Dean mm. or kind of, you know, biker films from the 1950s mm. and some ill-advised um, sort of 
slightly Clint Eastwood-tinged uh, influences as well. But I mean, that's... Were your parents strict? Did you have a... The, the oh, classic... no, no, my, my parents were strict. Right. But I was never at home for them to be strict too. <laughs> right, so uh, you really were... You were a, I, you know, I was, you know, a I rebel with a cause and totally, your cause was outside of the house. So totally, soon as I get up in the morning, the record was on, got ready for school, went to school, done my thing, come back, changed out, that was it. Um, so I didn't really spend much time with my my family. I, you know, I find them really boring, <laughs> as you do at that age. Um, but they went into music and, you know, a lot of my friends or, you know, people I should have been friends went into music. Um, so I had this little group of friends I was just, just to hang out with. And the other thing I like, I mean, I do find new music kind of educational because what's different between what we did then and now is if we got into a band, we'd want to know everything about them. Mm. And through that, we f- I discovered Roxy Music because, uh, you know, Johnny Rotten was into Roxy Music and The Clash, went, you know, so I discovered them and other bands. And then we kind of found out a lot more about America. As far as we knew, there was the American Soldiers, there was Statue of Liberty. But through people like The Clash, when they did that big tour and you'd see all the pictures and they'd be doing interviews all about them, you found a little bit more about America. Um, you know, things like that. It was quite educational, to be honest. I mean, absolutely. I mean, for a lot of people, Radio Clash would mm. be an, an introduction to, to hip-hop in, in, yes. in a way. Yes, You know, that's a, a British band in New York embracing the sounds of the street. You know, they made it their own. Mm. It's unashamedly white British, but... And it sounds tame now, but at the time, particularly for a punk band who at one stage had done White Riot, yeah. having a track which embraced those influences... In a way, that's more punk than punk. Mm. It, it's not not expected, and in in a way, could court controversy. And they made some strange choices, you know, in their careers. But I, but no I doubt think they it. had to because where mm. punk was going, um, it was a parody of itself, really. To be honest, it was just you know, where it was, and then so these bands had to kind of you know move on from that, still have still have that kind of punk thing going on, but something completely different but then there was that big transitional period between and what I got into as well was that kind of um, new wave you know punk and new wave slash neuro I loved that stuff because it was just a natural progression and we all got into that with Adam and the Ants and Adam and the Ants were the perfect bridge yeah bridge for that and in a way musically the bridge from the 70s into the 80s which in a way your next choice Susie and the Banshees Drop Dead Celebration oh my is word, such a track. A, I a absolutely love it. Example of. Again, another. You can see a direct correlation between um, Adam and the Ants and Susie and the Banshees. A, a similar dynamic with the drums. Yeah. And the instrumentation, which is a bit more sort of angular, and there's, there's textures, and yeah. um, it's even listening to it now, it's it's a, an, an exciting piece of music. You know, it's it isn't a standard three chord no 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 trick I, I, at all. And uh, it's Susie and the Banshees, in the same way as Adam and the Ants, created their own world. Yeah, the punk movement before they came along was in a way wanting to change the world, destroy the world, mm. break it down and start again. It's almost by the time that Adam and the Ants and Susie and the Banshees came along, it 
I think everyone realised that the world's not going to change overnight, but let's learn from what's happened and let's yeah. make it interesting. Yeah. And suddenly music became interesting. And it's a magical era. Because where I, t- I talk about the late 70s, early 80s, I said there would never be another kind of period of music like that again. It was just... You know, tracks were coming out. The music—it was just exciting. And there's individuality between each of the bands, and which you don't really get nowadays. And I think a lot, no, of- so much stuff is identikit, conveyor belts. Yeah. Um, whereas at that particular time, you know, you had young musicians who were being introduced to strange effects pedals. Mm. They didn't know how to use them, and I believe uh, Robert Smith, who had a brief time in yeah. using the Banshees, yeah. And- he found a novel way to recreate the guitar set. He just had every guitar pedal that they they had available and just put you know all of them on and kind of worked out, oh, that's that's the Susan the Banshee's guitar set. Yeah. And there's, there's a beauty in that. And in a way, there is that punk thing of, right, uh, plug it in. I'm not sure what the splanger does, um, but... Just have we'll, a go. Yeah. And it's unique. I mean, yeah. same, same as the vocals. I mean, I always say to people, if, if Susan, Susie went on to X Factor, she should be out the first week mm. because... They're not really looking for uniqueness anymore. They're looking for that perfect R and B advert sounding. No, so look at David Bowie. Mm. I mean that vocals, you know, and Brian Ferry and Susan. They're not perfect, but they're so unique. They're not perfect, but they're perfect. Yeah, to us. (laughs) Yes, you know, but it's that uniqueness in their vocal delivery, which is all gone now. Everything has to be perfect and. You know, hitting your rock. Who cares? I mean, it's um, I mean, auto tune has a lot to answer for. It's um, even how it's employed now. I think there's there's some people who are great singers who deliver that uniqueness, but they end up being chopped and turned into machines. Yeah, I mean, if you how they sounded on the records back then, you know exactly how they sounded live mm. whereas if you go and see a lot of the, kind of the new kind of bands you hear them like sound completely different mm. you know and that's what I kind of liked about that period as well I think also the the idea of how labels operated in that time it is very very different to how it's been in recent years um, I think in the, the 70s and 80s the notion of breaking a band through touring yes. was still very very much a reality yeah. And wherever possible, even if bands at first couldn't play, labels would get them on tours. And they'd end up playing every toilet you can imagine up and down the country. If you see the the tours that Susie and the Banshees and Adam and the Ants did, any of the bands from that that era were involved with. I mean, they played everywhere. Well, totally. Um, There's there's some towns and villages that do not exist. But suddenly, you know, you see places like, you know, Yeovil, you know, Blanford arriving on your rugby, um, arriving on on the the, the tour schedule. And because of that, you, you had bands who, even if they were not seasoned musicians at first, by the end of the first tour, they, 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 they had they, it. Yeah. They had it together. And as a result, be it through just sheer repetition, um, if you see live footage from bands from that era, brilliant. Mm. And, and it, 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 they sounded just like they did on, on the record. That uniqueness was there. Yeah. That delivery was there. Whereas now, because we live in the YouTube world, in which ultimately the, the, the tours that people do now mm. are a fraction of 
um, of, of in terms of the number of dates that are involved, a fraction, you know, not even a quarter of what yeah. bands used to do. And as a result, um, there is an issue of going to the studio, polish the turd, and <laughs> yeah. make a nice video, do a couple of festival gigs, fly in as many backing vocals and parts as possible, and there you go. And it, it's really sad. Well, I mean, I think you look at a lot of the bands that have been out over the last kind of maybe, say, 10 years, they're not here anymore. There's no longevity in a lot of these bands anymore because, you know, the 70s and 80s, what they would do is they would build the band. They would build that fan base naturally. Um, so that that's why, you know, even 30 years later, I'm still Adam and the Ants freak. I absolutely love Susan and the Banshees. You know, these bands can keep their fans for a long time. Whereas now, um, because it's all about that instant hit, mm. instant fan base, yes, you'll get that fan base, but they don't hang around for too long. No. They move on to the next thing because it's not a natural fan base. It's, a, it's almost like a forced fan base I and fame. something it's move, very kind of flash in the pan. It was yeah. come and go very rapidly, which my dog Molly is in clear agreement with. First gig. Adam and the Ants, Prince Charming Review. So 1981, I think. My word. 1981. And where did you um, see we, them? I was living in Aberdeen, so we had to come down to London. My word, that's um, a track so, and a half. So my mother came down, because her family is an elephant and castle. Um, during, oh, was it the Drew? Oh, I have no idea. I was really young. Um, all I remember, my mum took me, and it was Adam and the Ants, the Prince Charming Review Tour. I couldn't see shit. <laughs> I was but, really but you, small. you were there. I loved it. I loved it. Singing along. and So it's the first kind of experience that I'd kind of had. Which venue? Um, you know what? I have no idea. It doesn't matter. I cannot remember. You were in a room with Adam and the Ants with at Adam that particular Ants. time. And it was just it was just amazing. And it was how, how I ever imagined it to be. Because obviously, um, you know, I'd hold the magazines. I knew everything about him and this kind of stuff. And actually be going in. And, you know, he's like... However far away, it was fucking miles away. Um, but he was there. He's over there. Um, and it was just amazing. And, you know, and hearing the music kind of live and being surrounded by that kind of energy. It was the first time I'd experienced it. And it was just incredible. So first gig where you couldn't see much, but you could hear it. And for you, it was about the collective energy of being mm. with people that were singing along. And that vibe, in a way, is bigher than the artists themselves. Yeah. And that's a powerful thing. We were talking about The Clash earlier, and for good reason, Straight to Hell, that's on Combat Rock. Yep, yeah, and it's the B-side to... Uh, oh, God, what's the B-side? Straight to Hell, and the other side was... It's the one with the skull and the helmet, and... Is it the B-side to Should I Stay or Should I Go? Yes. It is Should yes. I Stay or Should yes. I Go. I'm a Clash fan, I... I I don't want to offend the record collector reviewers there, but uh, I mean, what a tremendous A and B side to, to that was have. Incredible. I mean, it was really hard to choose. Is it either either one of them two? Um, and I thought should have stayed. Should it was quite an obvious one. Um, but I thought straight to hell. Not many people know kind of straight because I think at that point when Combat Rock came out, I think the Clash had kind of lost all their kind of punk. A lot of their kind of punk fan base. It was all a new kind of fan base. Um, and I think it was kind of, it's kind of a lost track. No, maybe you know about that track. Go straight to hell, boy. Go straight to hell, boy. Although just a Clash B-side, Straight to Hell was sampled by M.I.A. for their track 
Paper Planes in 2007. The, the, the sample, the yeah. Nick Jones yeah. delay guitar. I mean, I love that part. That's just, uh, yeah. it's, it's beautiful. And uh, I was amazed somebody didn't get to that earlier. Mm. When The Clash appeared on the live American comedy show Saturday Night Live, they performed that. Oh, okay. Which is quite a, a daring tune to do because yeah. it, 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 it's it not an isn't obvious. immediate. Mm. It isn't obvious. That's the reason why I liked it on that on that album, Combat Rock, which it tends to not get referenced very much by Clash yeah. fans. But to be really, really honest, and I'm going to get slightly anoraki here with... Uh, you, you like your Clash, don't you? I love Clash, Right, yeah. okay. Like, Sandinista, mm. it's not a great album. Mm. Or it's a challenge of an album. I was on tour once where we wanted to make it our favourite Clash album. Mm. And we listened to nothing but it for... 37 dates on oh. <laughs> on that tour and that's each side of that triple album and you know it, it's uh, I, mean, I think Mick Jones even said with hindsight it's just a good album for oil work, oil rig workers <laughs> yes. yeah. yet because it, it came from the era that it did and because of the whole political nature of the mm. title it, it it still gets referenced quite positively, was Combat Rock, because it, by that stage, The Clash had broken America. Yeah. They were performing at the US Festival. And despite a lineup change on top of Heaton's departure, mm. they were still The Clash. But Combat Rock is a great album. I absolutely love that album. Because it's also got um, Should I Stay or Should I Go on it as well, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. Should I Stay or Should I Go. Um, the Rock, the Casper. Rock the Casper. Rock the Casper. Rock the Casper. And Ghetto Defendant, the, the track that uh, Alan Ginsberg appears on 1982, I believe, Combat Rock yeah. Yeah. Um, came out. And Susie and the Banshees dropped Dead Celebration what, the, around the same time previous year. I think that was that. No, I think that was about 19, end of 80, beginning of 81. Oh, as early as because that. Because it was a B-side of um, Happy House. Oh my word! Another amazing kind of A side. I mean, Happy House again, a tremendous, loved it, absolutely tremendous loved song. It. So good. I mean, I, I remember buying that on single, and all I listened to was Happy House, Happy House, and I thought, oh, what's on the B side? And I just played it. It was like, oh my word, this is really. I love this tune, and it's been my favourite Susie's tune since. I mean, in a way, it's like around that particular era, you'd assume people around a boardroom had decided on the the A side, and then for the B side, the bands could choose tracks that they liked but were not obvious singles, which I yeah. think explains why the kind of Straight to Hell or Drop Dead Celebration, mm. you know, were included by Susie and the Banshees and the Clash respectively, and um, you know, it's a uh, Quite an exciting proposition to be able to be in a position to to do that. Had you ever been in a situation to see Susan the Banshees live? No, you know what? It's one of my. I did meet her backstage at a, and I was just in awe. I think I tried to mutter something, um, but it is definitely a band I keep missing, um, and I would love to see them back then, without a doubt. I mean, I think she'd still be. They're supposed to be amazing and powerful even now. Uh, but I would have loved to have seen around about that period of like Israel and that kind of period. I f- oh, it'd be amazing. All the live footage I've seen from that era and uh, that they were talking about just phenomenal. Mm. Such a great band, and you know, um, you know, ditto, ditto with the, the Clash. And uh, with the Clash, I wasn't that keen about seeing them live because I didn't think they were much to look at. I don't think they. I mean, I've seen kind of live footage. and think I don't think they were live wise. To be there, but they sounded great live, 
So I wasn't that really interested about seeing them but live. Even Paul Simonon didn't, no, I didn't just do it for you. No, I just don't think they had, you know, I don't know. I just think they didn't really kind of talk to me as a live thing. But something like Susan, the Banshees, they really did because I thought she was incredible. I mean, so, was, you know, the, they all are great, but she was moved a lot more. I find, you know, Joe Strummer was an amazing musician, but I didn't really want to be going to see someone who just stood by the mic and just got aggressive with it. You know, he didn't really move much from the footage I seen. Yeah, he was, it was all about the, the foot stomp. Yeah, you know, and things like that. I said, I want to see something else. I wasn't that interested in seeing them. I mean, I would have gone to see them if I could, but it wasn't my kind of number one on my bucket list. Your next choice, a band obviously at its epicentre, a mutual collaborator and partner in crime and friend, Bow Wow Wow Go Wild in the Country. Absolutely love that tune. I absolutely love it. I mean, that came out about 1981. Um, so obviously, from punk, I got into obviously obsessed with Adam and the Ants. I knew everything about Adam and the Ants, and I knew um, that the, the first lineup of Adam that I just absolutely loved become Bow Wow Wow. Um, obviously, C30 came out, absolutely loved it. But it wasn't until this track came out, um, it just blew my mind. I thought it was just incredible, and the drums on it were just incredible. and that kind of Dwayne Eddy guitar on it and her vocal delivery and um, you just wanted to jump around. I can tell you a funny story about that. Please. Sorry, sorry Dad. <laughs> when uh, I come back from school early and I went in for a bath and stuff and put that record on so I wrapped, because obviously I'd just seen them on top of the pops, so I wrapped a sheet around me, absolutely naked. So I'm jumping off my bed to go wild in the country, not realising my father was standing at the door watching me kind of do this. <laughs> Are you kind of, so it stopped, just <laughs> closed the door, slowly walked away. What an amazing story. Mm, no, I mean, it's great. I mean, he still talks about it now that I was prancing around my room with a sheet wrapped around me to go out in the country. There's something so innocent about that. Mm. You were just caught in the moment and the fashion and the sound, and it overwhelmed you to where you wanted to become yeah, the totally, artist. Yeah, totally, without a doubt. I was Annabella for like five minutes. Because um, I've seen on top of the pops, and I used to be amazed at how, same as Adam in the Arts, I used to be amazed um, at how they moved, and same as Susie, how they moved. That little thing she used to do, that little, uh, just in- incredible. Um, and same with Annabella when I seen her um, on top of the pops doing that. I just loved it, that tribal kind of um, dance. That she used to kind of do, I thought it was just incredible. And the whole sound, even today, mm. is. I mean, I mentioned earlier how Adam and the Ants created their own world, and you know, Baba Wow, you know, did that in, in spades. Mm. And it is this very exotic tribal drums, Dwayne Eddy, but with a punky edge. Yeah, yeah. Uh, from and that Ashman's. Bass, that slap bass Absolutely, was just yeah. like, oh my word. Lee Gorman coming from a completely different angle, yeah. and, and the vocals. You know, normally if you hear that the backing track, you kind of half expect to hear a slightly kind of a male singer yeah, yeah. doing a bit of a of a, like an Eddie Cochran style delivery mm. over it, and instead, you know, you, you've got you know a, a feminine voice with attitude and swagger and everything, and what what a, a tremendous band! And I mean, I mean, with that, especially with Bow Wow, I mean, looking at it, you know, number one, 
Michael McLaren was behind it, who's behind the Sex Pistols. That was enough for me. So you were aware of that link oh, oh, as a all fan. of it, all of it, all of it. Um, you know, the backline was basically Adam in the Ants, and you know, the kind of controversy kind of Malcolm was trying to do with you know C30 and the whole point behind that, and then the first album coming out with her naked on the front and all this kind of stuff, and you know, things like Sexy Eiffel Tower, which was either going to be that or Sexy Eiffel Tower. But I thought it might oh, have right. been, been a bit rude for radio. <laughs> we like rudeness here. And uh, Boward, had you seen them live? Or? No, because remember, a lot of their stuff they did was in America. True, um, I so they I, didn't do that many gigs in UK. They, no, they, they followed they, the, the Yankee dollar. Yeah, because I think they, they were supporting the Pretenders and, mm. in America. I mean, I have to read all about it and... You know, they used to do a few kind of gigs and kind of lunch. So I missed all of that. I missed it. And I, I think I was living in Cyprus then as well when they'd really kind of kicked off when um, I Want Candy came out. and so I, was, so I couldn't see them. I was just too far away. I was too young. I was 12. I suppose, yeah, it, it's, you were in such a fortunate position with um, Adam the Ants being able to have your, your mum yeah. willing to yeah. take you down from Aberdeen all the way to uh, London Town to see them and... Uh, Thank goodness. And also for, for, I think, a a lot of bands touring, it's not necessarily always all-ages venues either. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, the thing, what I like, I mean, I didn't know this until years later, um, with Adamant chose his venues, particular, you know, particularly so the younger audience can go, so there's no alcohol being sold. I didn't know that until years later, and that's why um, the kids could actually go and see him, and that's who it was for. Because that's where his fan base really was. Absolutely, yeah. He is very, very clever marketing. Mm. Um, I think also it helped uh, he was teetotal himself as well so in in a way in a way also going back it was a, a, a way to promote that which also was a way promoting wholesomeness which made parents want to go and take the kids to I mean, see it was, him I mean I, th- I think it was kind of a trick for the parents we didn't care if he was smoking and <laughs> taking drugs we didn't care but it made the parents think oh he's nice you know Let's support this lovely man. Even my mum says, oh, I used to love Adamant. <laughs> he was lovely. <laughs> I mean, in a way, it was quite a, a, a phenomenal, and there's a bit of a Malcolm McLaren connection here. Yeah. Like I'm looking at Culture Club and the, the wholesome image that Boy George was able to I mean, I love Culture Club. Again, I mean, the connections between, obviously, Boy George was a, a lead singer with Bow Wow for a couple of gigs. Of course, I forgot about yeah, that. Yeah, and you know, and, ah. and Malcolm McLaren was behind his first little thing, and you know, so there's all that kind of connection. That and obviously the first album, which I absolutely love, simply because John Moss is an incredible drummer. Absolutely and brilliant. Again, drummer. it was all them kind of tribally beats mm. and on that kind of first album. It's kind of a pity that so many of the Culture Club tracks were. Recorded probably with either Lindrums or Simmons pads. Uh, yeah. um, I mean, in a couple of instances, you, you'll you'll kind of hear the really, really kind of prominent hi hats, and you, mm. you can hear that. You know, Moss has some tremendous kind of reggae dub chops in terms yeah. of what he's doing with the upper part of the kit. Brilliant drummer, and frightfully underrated as well. But, I mean, you know, the thing is, you know, with John Moss, I mean, he played on. Um, Card Chopping Kick for the Adamant release. He was a drummer for Damned. He was a drummer. Of course, he, yeah, he did a tour Clash. for Damned, yeah. Uh, he, he, was, he drummed for The Clash. Didn't last long, but he drummed for The Clash as well. So he's got all that connection as well. Great drummers and the early 80s mm. who have you know, become jack of all trades with amazing bands. Really, with the exception of, kind of the 
I'm just trying to think of kind of journeymen who do the same thing these days. With the exception of kind of Dave Grohl, who he's about the only one really, yeah, who's good and he jumps, you know, all different bits. I think he's the only one. Now, there, I don't think there are. I mean, obviously they're all good drummers, but there's no one as good mm. as him. Around, you know, and he really, you know, it's all about the drums and pushes them drums forward. Um, I think with a, with a lot of bands, the drummer's not so important. New no. bands, it's, but back then they were. Absolutely. I mm. think um, in these days where it's very easy to be lazy as a musician, if mm. you know that you put on a drum take, and I've done loads of sessions myself where comments like, oh, it doesn't matter what the snare sounds like, we'll just uh, exactly. you know, trigger you know, it anyway, use a sample. Mm. And it's like, oh, you know, the kicks are running a bit later, we'll, uh, we'll just we'll cut it into shape. So it means that, um, you know, in in comparison to... I suppose people coming of age in the 70s and 80s and to a certain extent the the 90s where they would be analysing whatever drum heroes mm. they had and would be annoying their folks or and friends around yeah. them trying to do parodies. That was me. That was me. <laughs> me too. <laughs> um, that culture doesn't really seem to be in place as much. I mean, I think a lot of bands, you see a lot of bands coming through and the band members that are always changing is the drummer and the bassist. Mm. You know, it's almost like they're not so important. But what they don't realise, that backline, you know, that drummer and that bass are the, probably the most important Agreed. bit of that track. And everyone's got their own kind of way they play. And, um, and that dynamic with, with the bassist and drummer is really important for the band as a whole. And I think that's kind of lost with a lot of the new bands that are coming through. It's all about that lead singer with the big hair and crappy voice. You know, they're kind of focusing on that and not the rest of the band. I mean, it's quite... I, I would say that, um, you know, talking about Adam and the Ats and Susie and the Banshees and Bow Wow Wow, mm. incredibly distinct and rhythm sections. Mm. Big you know, time. Very, very, very unique. As soon as you hear, even just isolated, the drums and bass uh, on, on you know those, with those bands, you know who it is straight yeah. away. And, and what a, a rare dynamic that is. Mm. I mean, you could have some amazing rhythm sections who you bring to the the party loads and loads of skill, but who might not have that degree of kind of distinctive oomph. And um, yes, and I, I think the same holds true with your next choice, Roxy Music and the track Same Old Sea. I absolutely love that tune. I, I love as I said, I didn't know who Roxy Music were, and I, I found them. And this is what, um, as I said, punk was important to me because through punk and reading interviews and you know their influences and things like that, you find other bands and then you find their history. Um, and Roxy Music, I just absolutely love Roxy Music, and I loved and how I kind of discovered them was obviously through punk Roxy Music. But then when Adamant had sacked Kevin Mooney, brought in Carrie Tibbs, and he was from Roxy Music, and I thought, oh my God, there's a connection. And it was the Flesh and Blood album, which I listened to religiously. Bass on that, because Gary Tibbs on most of the track. And that song, I thought was just incredible. Way ahead of its time. Tibbs is a phenomenal bassist mm. um, and comes from a very similar school of playing as you know, the Gormans of the world. Yeah, and yeah. Bringing in a very funky sensibility, but with the drive of, of rock and, yeah. and punk and... So it isn't twee. It isn't twee white funk. Mm. It's um, it's great bass lines that make you want to dance. 
and make you want to get up and do things with your fist. And not too many bassists are able to do that. Yeah, I mean, just, not, not, I mean, I don't know what he did have after Adam and the Ants. I think a lot of session work. I know he was playing with a fairly recent incarnation of The Fix, as well as a brief stint in The Vibrators as well. I mean, I think, you know, now in hindsight, I think what happened, I think, because Kevin Mooney, I thought was incredible. He was just everything that I, I wanted to be. Was I think he, he left the band so fast at their peak. Um, and while they were working on the new stuff, they had to bring in. Uh, and you, So I think he's more of a session uh, musician, really, because he only did uh, that one album, three singles, and that was it. Going off topic a little bit, and we're talking about journeymen, people that go from kind of mm. one great artist to another. I think another one which comes to mind, not dissimilar in terms of era, would be Postsmith's Johnny Marr, who then yes. went on to play with Talking Heads, The Pretenders, yeah. The The, and uh, Brian Ferry, and and Electronic. Yeah. And, um, I mean, bless, it helps to have have a name, but he didn't need to be joining all these acts and certainly not going from band to band. See, I didn't even know that. Oh, really? <laughs> a lot of them bands you mentioned that he went on to. Mm. I, didn't, I didn't know that. Um, I knew he did a lot of kind of session work and I knew he kind of like guest appearance and stuff like that. But he did um, entire tours with, uh, with a lot and did some recording with Talking Heads. So it's a bit like, you know, he, Post Smiths, wanted to depart from the indie jingle jangle yeah and you know went very very ethereal with the the went very world music dot 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 whatever mm. talking heads were doing at that time bringing in some chimey jingle and jangle i suppose with chrissy hind and the pretenders and with uh brian ferry um, mm. just some tremendous really kind of ethereal guitar playing loads and loads of uh very sophisticated designer guitar sound uh, delivery from him but, um, and to be fair, I mean, Johnny Mars continued doing that. Mm. He played in you know, the Cribs. He had a brief tenure with uh, Modest Mouse, uh, mm. an American band who advertised for a Johnny Marr style guitar player, and he answered it. Right. And uh, Modest Mouse, have you heard of them? Do, do not be no, embarrassed. No. Yeah, it's kind of one of those bands who are big enough to play Royal Abbott Hall, which right. they did the last time that they oh, okay. played UK yet are by no means a household name. They kind of play 4,000 capacity venues around the world, right. yet um, are in that kind of sub-radiohead American college rock world. Oh, okay. And, uh, and everything. But yeah, it, it's, um, I suppose it, it helps if you're kind of independently wealthy, as Johnny Marr you know, is and was, to be able to... Just right, choose. Oh, yeah. Proje- yeah, choose projects and... And also not to have a horrible kind of drug addiction. It means that it gives you the ability to say yeah. yes to things. And um, I'm not trying to imply that's what happened to Tibbs, but it kind of does make you wonder, you know, what... Yeah, I mean, he did literally disappear quite fast because obviously the last kind of ant single was Ant Rap, which I thought was incredible. The music, not the vocals. Um, and then he just kind of disappeared. And he released a 12-inch with um, Merrick. Oh. Um it was called Tibbs and Merrick. Um, and it was just one It was one single. Um, it was Pants. Um, and then they just disappeared. <laughs> that that literally came out soon, as soon as it kind of got announced that Adam and the Ants had split. Um, that literally came out within two weeks, two, three weeks. Here's a question which may offend you. Adam and the Ants versus Adamant. Discuss. It's all about Adam, as in his solo stuff. Mm. Oh, it doesn't even compare. It doesn't even compare. 
Um, the first Adamant solo album I liked because it was Adam and the Ants. Um, because the, the, how fast it kind of split between um, releasing the first Goody Two Shoes mm. um, and how's that proven? Because the first kind of issues of Goody Two Shoes came out as Adam and the Ants Goody Two Shoes. Really? That's how fast. Right. Yeah, and I've got it. So they do you have a, an original of pressing? Of course. That With must be Adam worth and a the small Ants, fortune. Yeah. Um, so that shows you how fast that kind of happened. So and then straight after that, obviously the Friend of Foe album came out, and you listen to that. That is basically Adam and the Ants. Um, but everything after that was pretty pap. Yeah, I think the the 80s certainly started to take their toll on, on him and eventually everything that made Adam and the Ants great, Yeah, he, he just just sounded like very bog-standard tunes I mean, with thing, Adam lyrically, and singing over it. Yeah, I mean, even lyrically and things like that, I just think the dynamic with Adam and the Ants was quite unique. Once he kind of got rid of them... Um, massive head um, it, that dynamic was gone it di- and you know as far as I'm concerned that's when his he's done a few good obviously tracks since mm. I mean there's a few of the albums obviously the albums it released there's a few really good tracks on there um, but as far as I'm concerned you know phew, there's no comparison between Adam and the Ants and Adam Ant far from it have you worked with a man um, ever not no not Adam Ant I don't think I would like to um, right because there's something about because obviously you've idolised them since you were like ten years old. Mm. I just think there's certain heroes of yours you should never work with. You should never work with. I've been told that many a time. Keep people that you like near. Keep those that you've idolised far away. Yeah, yeah. Which is fair enough. Now we've discussed your autobiographical playlist. Yep. Which has given me a real flavour for what's made you you. Mm-hmm. Now. Here are some songs that you've been involved with. Yeah. A number of these are remixes. We have a mixture of remixes and original tracks here. Yeah. Starting first with a very, very, very tasty and epic remix of Dead or Alive's Spin Me Round under the Punk's Soundcheck yeah. heading. How did Punk's Soundcheck come about? Um, when did it come about and... It's not just you, is it? No, there's two of us. There's two of us in Punk Sound. I mean, I did have uh, one half of Punk Sound. Used to be another kind of music producer, but he kind of left me before, like years ago, um, to the new kind of guy. Excel with grapes, fuckhead. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Kicked him out. Um, so I've been probably going for about, oh, probably say about 14 years. Yeah, and then basically, obviously, I've been doing music, and you know, the early 90s, all the rave stuff we were releasing, and um, got to the late 90s, putting out records, but it was very. Kind of very, not throwaway, but back then you just released this record under a name, that record. You just got a record, you just got it out, and it's really easy to sell vinyl, um, no matter how bad the track was. We used to, you know, make a rave track within ten minutes, press it up, and off it went, and you'd sell like two, three thousand in a week. Get the white labels of the DJs, totally, and totally. It was sell so easy. Afterwards, what a great era! Again, mm. quite punk influenced yeah. in a way. So at the the John Taylor talking to me earlier about how you were inspired by the the Sex Pistols and the the punk scene making it possible, mm. it, where it didn't just seem like you were disappearing to Alistair Crowley's yeah. house in the the middle of nowhere and mm. had to drink the blood from a virgin in order yeah. to get this amazing drum sound. Oh, mind that though. Yeah, <laughs> well, indeed, me too. Suddenly, technology became accessible. Instead of having to go wildly expensive in the country, you could make recordings 
awesome sounding ones from a, a home studio yeah. in old factories and, you know, get test pressings out to DJs. And there's something quite hands-on where mm. you've got, you know, a box of vinyl and you take it to the distributor, you know, yourself. Yeah, and and we used to do that. I mean, it was hard work, but it was great. Mm. It's um, very, very hands-on. Mm, but you, you kind of you controlled it. And also, I mean, we released records on like major labels and things. And it was just so much hard work. There's so much kind of fidgeting around. So I think it was quite nice to release on labels but also do your own thing as mm. well, um, which is what we did quite a lot. And obviously with the Spin Me Around, um, if you're a mutual, a, a mutual friend, just call says, oh, do you want to do a remix for Sony? I says, oh, who is it? So it's Dead or Alive, Spin Me Around. I was like, yes, without without a doubt. Um, and then basically Pete Burns and him came up just while we were working on the remix and it came up to the studio. So we struck up a good friendship with him and um, Steve Coy, the manager, and... Um, we did the remix. He had it pressed up onto this limited edition 12-inch that had the 11-minute version that we did. Um, and then we obviously, the editor that was a bit pissed off about because he edited down our mix to about three and a half, three minutes 50. Bastard. But they took all the good bits out. Mm. I mean, I mean, it's a good mix, but it's not how we would have edited it. So I wish we... But it got to number 11 in the chart, so check it out. Bring it on. Yep. You spin me right round, baby, right round Like a record, baby, right round, round, round You spin me right round, baby, right round Like a record, baby, right round, round, round And it's very, it was right at the very beginning of a le- what they called Electro Clash as well um, So it was all about the, the kind of straight beat, very kind of Germanic And that kind of octave bass line, you know, it was very big then uh, but that remix got a lot of kind of notice for us and we got taken out to America to, to DJ and all because of that one remix. And what year did you do the that remix? That would have been like maybe 2003. Right. Mm. And were you there for, for Pete to do the recording of the vocals for that? Um, he'd already done the vocals. Oh, so you, uh, you had but, the, the But he came around while we were working on his vocals and stuff like that. So he gave us a few pointers of where his vocals should sit. Um Things so he came round, so we kind of struck a really good kind of friendship with him. I can see what you mean by the the German industrial just, yeah, relentless exactly, yeah. kick. You know that that is all about shaking the room and then some. Well, the the other remixes on the uh, the release it was all sounded like can't get you up because Kylie can't get your head was big back then at the same kind of time two thousand three, and all the other mixes sounded like Kylie. Mm. And we were something completely different. And I think that's why people kind of connected to it. And the Dead or Alive fans really loved it as well. Uh, people were making their own videos to it and things like that. And I think it got used in a couple of TV programs as well. Obviously, we never got paid for it. You just got your flat fee. Just got and a flat fee and that was it. I know that feeling. Visage, Fade to Grey. Obviously, one of the most famous videos mm. in video history. And one of the ultimate new romantic tunes. And a brilliant treatment that, that you did how did that come about um, what year are we talking about here that's a very recent one basically what happened I've, we've known Steve for a long time and we did a, release a couple of you know records the late Steve Strange um, we made a couple of records when we were signed to a German label and he featured on a couple of our records and we did an original remix of Fade to Grey back in the early Electro Clash days uh, which didn't stand the test of time now that's why we and we recorded the there's a missing verse from Fade to Grey as well um, that we recorded with him that we put into the original version um, 
and obviously through I went on tours with him to Moscow playing keyboards for him and so we had a good kind of friendship and then obviously he died recently um, so Boy George uh, did a remix and said well you know you guys do another remix we did a, like a contemporary kind of remix um, which is very kind of like housey that kind of vibe and it's supposed to be coming out on George's label um, when I don't know um, but we wanted to leave it for quite a bit of time because I don't want people to think we're jumping on that kind of bandwagon. It could seem as though it's in bad taste. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's a, it's a fitting tribute. That track will mm. stand the test of time anyway, but uh, to have it so soon Just after soon his after. passing... I mean, I think yeah. we, we have a right to do... I mean, we have a right. We were friends with him. We've known him for a long time. You played with the man. Yeah, and, you know, played with him. We went to Moscow together. We've recorded tracks together. And obviously George's history with Steve as well. Um, so I think we have the kind of... You know, I think it's more right than most to be able to do that. Um, and I just think Steve is kind of underrated. I don't think he gets the respect he kind of deserves because he changed clubbing as we know it, as we knew it. Um, you know, for you kind of queuing up and, you know, he kind of started that really with the Blitz. Blitz. Um, you know, and having that, you know, back then when he went to club, you got, it was like going to a posh radio show. You were listening, you know, they'd be playing all pop music, all this, all this. But he was the first one to kind of really define that this club only plays this. If you want to hear this, this is the only play. You know, so he kind of started that whole thing, really. Um, the club culture, and he was one of the beginning guys to actually start it. What was he like to work with? Did you know about his demons? Did his demons... Oh, I mean, they, they were there. They were right. there, but he was a really, really sweet guy. Um very, I mean, could see, I was quite a surprised how long he's been in the music industry and how naive he, naive he was, actually was. I just don't think he's seen the bad side in people. I just think he liked to look at the good side. And, and I think because of that, people did kind of take the piss and um, and obviously he had his demons with the drugs and things that was still there. And um, Very sad, very sad. One thing which you told me backstage at a gig we were involved with about... Fade to Grey. One thing you told me is that the um, on the original track, yep. that there's a rather famous backing vocalist who was yep. there to kind of thicken up the sound a bit. It was a Major. Major. Yeah. And that's the first that I'd heard about oh, that. Okay. I mean, Major, obviously, you know, he was Visage. We yes. all know that, know that. And obviously, working with Steve, I mean, he wasn't the best vocalist. Um, he did very write, distinctive style. Very, very, very distinctive. But he was always backed. If you listen to Fate of Grey and you listen closely, you'll hear Midge. You'll hear him. You listen close. Get the original. Have a listen. You'll hear him. He'll be coming in. He's really backing up um, Steve. Um, so I think Steve had a Midge to thank for a lot of the music. 100%. Absolutely. If you listen to Ultravox from yeah. that era that there is such a, a, a continuation of, of sound and ethos and mm. vocal sensibility. And um, what was the longest tour that you did with Steve Strange? Was it... Um... We did Russia. It's probably a couple of weeks. I mean, it's the funniest thing I've ever been. There was only me and him. The rest of it was coming from backing. All right, so live, you were there to do live yeah, keyboard like parts. keyboards and um, he'd be at the front because basically... We do like clubs and little kind of. It wasn't like big concert halls. It was kind of like PAs at you know um, big nights, and uh, I think we played for the royal family in Kazakhstan as well, which is absolutely hilarious. Really, I mean the funniest story I ever heard. I, mean, we, I had with Steve was in Moscow, and it was the um, the first gig, and he had all proud about this Vivian Westwood. Um, what do you call it? The 
corset. Mm. So he was showing it off. Oh, look at this corset. I thought, God, it's going to look really tight. Um, so he's all done in his Westwood in his corset. And then on the way to the gig, he was like, you know, flutter himself down. God, I feel really faint. I'm going to faint. And he was going white. And I'm going, what's wrong? And it wasn't until I looked, I thought, that looks a bit weird. He put the corset on upside down. So he couldn't breathe properly. No. And um, I literally nearly weed myself before I got to the gig. I was <laughs> laughing so hard. But, you know, he had funny moments, really funny moments. He was a funny, funny guy. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was fun, a lot of fun, a lot of fun. And how did you go from doing remixes with him to playing keyboards with him? The keyboard side, I think, because basically I um, used to go DJ for a promoter out in Moscow and things and... Um, obviously, it was right, you know, with Electric Clash, and we, you know, we released um, a couple of tracks with Steve, and he wanted to bring Steve across to do PA's, and so I went across to do the PA's with Steve, and then I'd go off and do some DJ gigs and come back. So it was kind of a two-in-one, really. And the same with Mark Almond, he did the same with Mark Almond as well. I did um, a couple of shows with him, just me and him playing keyboard, and now I'm going to do a DJ gig somewhere and come back. You definitely have the ability to attract the the. Collaborations. Oh, I'm a stalker. Of, yeah, <laughs> of people of of iconic singers from mm. a certain era, and Mark Almond. It's quite a, a legendary character. What was he like to work with? I mean, he was amazing. I mean, how I met him was. Is this, uh, and sorry to cut in. Is this pre or post motorcycle accident? Pre and post. Right. Um, with how I met Mark was we we had a label called Icon Series where. We used to press up little coloured seven inches that were limited to like 300. It was more of a self-indulgent thing, really. And we'd get people would buy them. And we'd released one, released number two. And then number two, um, we did a track called Eurotrash Boy, which really got us noticing the electro. It was a big sound at the time. Um, and I was working in a shop in Greek Street called Coke and Desire, the record shop side of it, not the fashion side. And then Mark came in um, going on about how much he loved that record. I says, oh, it's my record. And he says, oh, we'd love to, let's do something together, and let's do one. Um, so that's how we kind of got started writing together. Well, he wrote the track. We, we did the instrumental, he wrote the track, he come in, recorded the vocals, and um, so we released that as a seven inch, and we sold out, like, within a couple of days. It was a vi- white vinyl with this nice big picture of him. And, nice. Um, but then we signed to a German label called Pale Music, um, and we released a, we got remixes done, and it came out in a double 12 inch, and he had this big portrait done of us and Mark that was used for the cover and um, so that's how it all kind of started really but he was incredible an absolute professional without a doubt tremendous Mm. voice as well post motorcycle accident um, how was he to to work with yeah I mean it was really easy to work with before and obviously had his motorbike accident but I do think a lot of it came from there was um, for instance he just had the accident some label signed a track that he worked with and they releasing it on this limited edition 7-inch while he was still in hospital. and So I think there was a kind of, not paranoia, but there's a feeling that everyone was kind of ripping their piece. We didn't touch him at all. Um, and then we kind of done a couple more tracks for our second album with him. And yes, there was there was difference. Our kind of relationship was, wasn't was really there. Um, you know, questioning things a lot more and... Uh, which is understandable. Absolutely, particularly um, for when he's in hospital, it, it yeah, kind of feels I mean, as though people had their fingers in his various mm. kind of pies in terms of his uh, back catalogue or, or catalogue that was kind of being formed. 
It's also understandable that a near-death experience is going to... to check, but also, I think, you know, Neil lost his voice because of it. Oh, I didn't Yeah, because it's something that. to do with... I mean, I don't know the in and outs, but I do know he was he was close to kind of losing his voice. And, you know, um, I think he was worried about forgetting lyrics and things like that. So there was a lot of pressure on him at that particular time. It's understandable. Um, his fuse may have been shorter than normal. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think we, we kind of kind of left him alone and we did a couple more tracks that came out and... And then we just kind of parted ways. He went, and we haven't really spoke to him since, really. We haven't fallen out or anything like that. Right. It's just, I just think, I think things come to a natural kind of, you know, end. Mm. And I think that was our natural end. I think we've done the last couple of tracks. But we weren't going to do any more. It just comes to that natural end. And I think because we're working musically, I think it was, it was important. We weren't kind of hanging out. I think it was important that we weren't kind of. Buddies. It's good We're, to have that yeah. barrier because mm. just even from a time constraint point of view, if you're pally pally, your time in the studio can be spent wasting a lot of yeah, time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And sometimes not knowing each other means that there's a natural urgency to it. To... And professionalism. I'm mean, not saying we're not no yeah, professional, but, yeah, but. Absolutely. Um, and I just think things na- come to an, an end naturally. It wasn't, mm. you know, you never take things to heart. It just comes to an end naturally. And that's. Just the way it goes. Well, on this very show, earlier in the year, I had Dave Barbarossa as a guest who was here to promote his book, Mud Sharks, yep. as well as the work that he was doing with your good self, mm-hmm. with uh, which we'll be discussing in a moment, and his own band, Coordinated. And from that meeting and from that long interview that we did I ended up working with him with, yeah. and through that working with your good self mm-hmm. and it's quite fitting that the next track that we're going to be talking about from your stable is one of the tracks that featured on that very show in January on the Dukey Radio Show our interview with Dave Barbarossa which is Barbarossa Beat mm-hmm. which is a tremendous both from how his drums sound, but also everything that you're bringing to the party, mm. you know, the, the, the keyboards and you know the drums sound incredibly live and they're really in your face. But it's a bombastic tune that you could put on at any club anywhere. And if, yeah. And if people were not moving, it would probably be because they were dead. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> yeah. how did that come about? How did your meeting with, with him take place? And initially, my first knowledge of your good self was him mentioning that you were, number one, his manager, number two, the brains behind all the amazing punk soundcheck mm. tracks that he was featuring on. I mean, how would make... Because basically I've got... Um, it was a tattooist friend of mine, um, and she used to come round, Sarah Gregory, she used to come round and give me tattoos, and I've always got Bow Wow bits and playing this and Adam in the Ants. She's, oh, I know Dave Barbarossa. And obviously I've been obsessed with Dave since the Dirk album. Well, since your father saw you wearing that uh, yeah, exactly. ensemble. Yeah, exactly. Well, before then, because obviously I knew Dave Barbarossa was part oh, of the Dirk with, album. With, yeah, and the yeah, um, yeah. So I, that's why I kind of followed him kind of through. So he's always been my kind of favourite musician. I've always been kind of obsessed with what he'd done. I tried to follow what he'd done. Um, he says, oh, I know Dave. And I thought, oh, can you introduce us? You know, it's, it's stalkery. He says, oh, no, I hook these guys up. So she sent him a message. I think Dave sent me a message. And obviously the spiel of like some kind of fanboy oh I've always liked what you've done he must get a thousand of them a day 
He um, does. And I just, I mean, I just we kind of met up and just struck up, uh, struck up a really good kind of friendship. And I thought this guy's really kind of cool. And I explained to him that I'm really, you know, I want to do something with your drums. Is it possible? Thinking no way he's going to do that. Um, he said, Yeah, let's do something. And that was it. I mean, got- the, in a way, he is also that journey man that we were talking about earlier, mm. where Adam the Act, bow wow wow, bow wow wow into. Beats International Republic Republic yeah and you know playing with Roland Gift quite mm. recently and probably so many people in between that uh, um, well uh, Adamski yeah and you know always choosing very very innovative artists who are just this side of quirky mm. and the one thing about him that I love is he has a passion for playing so, you know, in a way, I'm not surprised that you'd think as a as a, a fan from back in the day that when asking him, you know, if he'd be up for playing, you know, you'd assume, well, no, you know, yeah. he, he's going to, you know, I'm far too big for this. Or, but he, he loves playing. He's just like yeah. a little kid um, he's behind that kit. I mean, I think also with Dave, I mean, he doesn't suffer fools gladly. I think no. he knows if he's going to get on with a person, if not. And we've stuck up a really kind of close... Kind of friendship, and you know, he trusts me, and I think that's really important. Um, and I try to kind of guide getting me. The reason why I wanted to do this kind of dance tracks because I think he's a name that everyone should know about, and not just in kind of the rock music and the band stuff, but also getting the live drums back into dance music again. Um, and that's what we tried to do with it. Um, so it's kind of his Dave Barbarossa kind of project, which is a combination of kind of you know, old school with contemporary. Um, just kind of merging the two together and getting to play different styles and, and obviously I wanted the Bower Wow drums all the time <laughs> which he keeps telling me off for <laughs> he loves it he, he does the thing about Dave as well he's just a nice guy mm. and very distinctive sense of humour and when he's behind the kit suddenly that sound as if by accident just appears I mean I, I, I kind of watch him I think oh my god Please teach me. But his timing as well is really mm. incredible. Incre- and I think the, the, the time I, I kind of, I mean, he was an amazing drummer, and you know, and I think this is not kind of thought out. Was when he was drumming with John Moss at the Chant. I've not been yet, but he oh, talked very fondly about it. I have seen some of the some mm. of the footage. I will make it there because those two guys kind of drumming together. And it was just incredible to watch. And it was something that I really want to get down onto, uh, you know, record it. I want to record it, which could be happening soon. Really? Oh, nice. Which brings us on to the next track, Mud Shark. Yeah. Obviously, the title of Dave Barbarossa's book but indeed a tune that you've been involved with yeah but again with that track obviously we did barbarossa beat and we've got a big project going on at the moment um which i'm not too sure i can talk about at the moment but it's gonna be incredible now what this was for was it was obviously not re-releasing but it was the second edition of his book um and i wanted that a track that would kind of people would relate to the book to the track i.e. the kind of classic old Bower Wow sound, his classic kind of drumming sound. Um, so we kind of recorded that. Um, we got a live bassist and a guitarist, but it sounded too 
It was almost like an outtake from a Bow Wow Wow track, mm. which Dave didn't want, but I absolutely loved it. So we kind of pulled back on the kind of the live bass sound of it. It was all about the drums we had. Um, you know, so it's very acoustic-y sounding. It is quite a live mm. sounding yeah. track. And the bass is very, very distinctive. Who did you get to um, play on that? It was a guy from... He's one of our tutors where I teach. He's he's a bassist for bands and he's got... He teaches bass and all that. So we kind of got him in just to kind of freestyle over the, the beats and we kind of cut it up and just laid it. So this... But we didn't push the bass too up front. I mean, it is about the drums. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the bass is... It's, in a way, it's quite... Even if... The, the bassist didn't deliberately do it. It is quite Gorman sounding in places. It's as though the, yeah. the drums impacted on yeah. the, his delivery. Mm. And also, we had, we used to, we had a, you know, kind of Matthew Ashman kind of guitar twangs in there as well. But we had to, there is that. But we, well. we didn't put, we only put one or two in there. And then obviously, it's got the oohs and ahs in it. It does, uh, yes. That's Dave. Yes. All <laughs> oh, right. Dave recorded them vocals, we just layered them. To stick it on everything. Yeah, totally. Next up, Neo Burlesque by Mark Almond, who we were talking about earlier. Tell me about the gestation of that tune. Um, again, obviously, as we kind of met him in the record shop and, you know, decided, he says, oh, yeah, I'd love to do the kind of next week's an icon series. As soon as I got home that night, we were writing that track. Um, so the whole idea is we wrote two tracks. Uh, we sent them to him and he wrote lyrics to it and kind of stayed with it a couple of weeks um, and we just came in straight into the studio. we didn't even hear, hear the track um, he basically came to the studio put the mic on headphones on and just sang this incredible track and it was like this is just perfect, perfect. freestyles yeah just did it you know obviously with the, the music in the headphones mm. but we hadn't heard the, the, his vocals or the lyrics or anything we literally got me to the studio look we got you know record it not even running through it just went in and done it and it was that track there we did all the backing stuff like that um, and the set we did two tracks went put it together it was incredible and it just the track just exploded and people really liked that track sometimes you can be in the studio and labour over a chorus for three months mm. and then a planetary alignment will take place and suddenly everything just falls into place mm. as if by accident and those I mean, even the arrangement moments. of the instrumental, because the whole idea with the... We didn't think about an arrangement. We just said, oh, you know, make sure there's pl- plenty of places we put the verses in, the choruses in. But he did it using our arrangement and just did it. Perfect. Amazing. Next, next, Take it off. Take up your dress. Next, next, Finally, Banshee featuring Martin Degville, he of Zig Zig Sputnik. Now, what it is, we obviously, punk sound, we've got a particular sound, uh, which is very kind of housey, bass line, um, deep housey kind of vibe. Uh, but we also do kind of obviously things like Barbarossa beat, but it's not, that's not under the punk sound check kind of name that's Dave Barbarossa's kind of solo stuff mm. um, and what we kind of we kind of like to kind of jump into other different sounds um, and one of the big sounds at the moment is kind of that big kind of room sound very um, not industrial but 
club sound. And obviously we didn't want to do something like that under a different, well, um, under punk sound check because it's all about the fan base and you're not doing too many different styles under that one name. You want to keep that flavour and, for want of yeah, a better phrase, indulge, sonic signature. Yeah, so we can indulge in other sounds or in a different name. So we came up with this Banshee name um, and I just happened to come across Martin Degville um, because we basically used Love Missile as our guide. You know, with that bass line, but we slowed it down at a mm. big industrial snare. So I kind of just messaged her, look, we're doing this track, we'd love to kind of use your vocals. Um, and I wanted that Martin Degville kind of vocal and the vocal spin backs and things like that. And we did it, and it was brilliant. Spot on. Because I love Zig Zig Sputnik. And what, what was he like to work with? Well, he recorded his own vocals because I think he lives in Brighton or something like that. Right, oh, so it's one of those um, where it was all through the glories of email and yeah, sending MP3s. Yeah, I, I mean, it was an absolute pleasure. I mean, he was, you know, loved the track, listened to the track. Um, and one thing I don't tend to do is when I get people kind of writing lyrics, I don't tend to give them any kind of guide. You know, write what you want. Mm. Um, what do you feel? Um, and if it's good, it's great. And usually, usually I don't tell anyone to change anything. Um, same with they'll get people to do remixes. I'll never tell them what I want it to sound like I want your interpretation um, so I just left not up to it and it was perfect it was spot on question for you here and this is quite weird because in a way we're working together but in another way I'm not sure how it came about now um, listeners to the Dookie Radio Show will know that I work with Dave Bobarossa in Coordinated and you know it's an absolute thrill and an honour to be a part of it and recently, uh, you know, part of our set list includes a track called Sick, yeah. which came from your good self. Now, how obviously, I know how your relationship with Dave Bobarossa came about, but how did Coordinated enter into your world? Um, well, basically, obviously, I knew Dave had kind of Coordinated, and because um, one thing I don't really know about is kind of. Um, the band circuit. Mm. I don't know much about the band circuit. And basically, I kind of listened to a few of the tracks and um, and I just wanted to kind of update them a little bit. And basically what it was, I, I got coordinated just to release a couple of singles with a label called Hot Work. Um, and basically the whole idea of that, I wanted to, instead of just a, a, a kind of gigging band, I wanted to get that kind of some product out there. Um it doesn't matter who with, what with, it's just product. You're not just a gigging band, you've got these kind of releases. And that was the whole aim of that. Um, it wasn't to have like a number one hit or sell millions, that's not the point. And obviously we did the remix for that and we reproduced the original. I think it was um, it was like three tracks or something for the first kind of release. So we reproduced it, redid his drums because he liked what we did with his drums on Barbarossa Beat. Um, and then the same again with Ringer Khan, we reproduced it and did a dub mix with Eva's vocals. <clears throat> um, and then Dave asked us to, he did want to write and produce the Coordinated stuff, and we said no, um, simply because we don't have time. But what we would do, we'd write you, we'd write a track. Um, so we kind of gave him kind of a, this idea of a track, which was sick, um, which he really liked. We, well, I think we sent like three or four little ideas, mm. and that was the one he kind of picked out. Um, and then just took it from there. Before I was even invited to collaborate with Dave, just after he was in this very studio on a podcast, I got 
a, an email from him saying, you know, here's Sick, the, the, the track, and tell me what you think of it. So, and again, at this stage, going back in time, mm. lovely man that I had in my studio, iconic drummer, got on very well. He's now asking for my opinion on this tune. Yeah. So you know, I gave him, you know, my kind of feedback. He says, let's, um, let's, you know, meet up at such and such a place and such and such a time. And um, that tune ended up turning into me eventually going into a rehearsal studio to start jamming over it. Yeah. So in a way, were it not for the track Sick, I yeah. might not be playing with, <laughs> with Dave and Eva in Coordinated. So it's a it's a, a strange, sick world. Mm, yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a great track. I mean, I knew what we'd done for it. We just kept it kind of very basic getting them kind of noisy. We didn't overdo the amount of elements that were in it because we knew there was going to be a vocalist on it. It will, the, the electronic drums were replaced by live drums. Uh, there will be a live bassist on it. So it was kind of keeping it quite stripped, but having that kind of powerful back end and everyone else kind of feeding off of that. I think it's a great track. I mean, especially the new recording. And here's a sneaky, peaky little preview of Sick by Coordinated and our collaboration with your good self, John. This is unmastered and this mix may not even be the final one, but I feel duty bound to let the Dookie Radio Show listeners have a gander at it.
mentioned that in your early musical gestation that drums mm. were your first in- instrument and hearing you talk about drummers you, know, you can see mm. that that instrument and percussion in in general really pumps your nads mm. but when you talk about your professional career as a musician outside of the studio it's as a keyboard player now you mentioned earlier that uh, out of necessity you know you couldn't be playing drums so mm. that you know you'd be tapping stuff out on the keyboards but obviously playing live keyboards with Steve Strange and the droids who you toured America with, you know, involves skill and you're not just tapping out drum beats. What happened to Drummer oh. Boy and how did Drummer Boy become Keyboard Boy? I'm a rubbish keyboard player. <laughs> really? Are you a <laughs> two-finger genius? But the thing is, uh, you know, because obviously it's tracks already out and I knew what, no, I mean, I said label them all. I'm not one of these kind of guys uh, you can go and go, I'm not one of them by far. Um, but I can, you know, knock out a little melody eventually. Um, but these tracks, I'd know what, no, I know because I've got a really good sense of timing, so I know exactly when to come in with it. So I'd kind of work it out from from chord to chord to chord to chord, and that's it. And that's all. It, I'm not one of these natural keyboard players. So you're not Rick Wakeman. Far from it, man. But you're a producer, remixer. DJ guru who brings that sense of time and musical sensibility to whatever mm. project that you're doing. Well, Harry, my, um, the other half of Punk Sanchez, he's the musical. The when I say musical, he's the one that's really good on keyboards. Right. He's the one that will get playing. I can hum it to him, or I could play a rough version of a melody. But he's the one that will turn it into proper notes and chords. All oh, right. So hence why you've got such a, a perfect partnership. Yeah, you, no, it's brilliant, brilliant. You know, I'm kind of drums and bass. He's kind of the melodies. Um, you can make them make them proper. So it's a good kind of um, amalgamation, really. If you were stuck on a desert island and you could have only one synth, what would it be? It has to be the Juno 60. So that's the one. That's the one, yeah. That is the one. Because right. it's got really good bass sounds on it. It's mm. got that classic kind of electric. It's got them nice strings. Yeah, it has to be the Juno 60. Bring it on. Well, hopefully you won't find yourself on a desert island with no power. Oh, yeah, but what about TB303? Ooh, squelchy bass. Yes, please. But then you might need to get a sampler in. You could get the old Akai 9 series or 3 series. Yeah, man, we need solar power and a big fucking studio. <laughs> Click on your mouse to our Facebook page Facebook It's easy to find, it will not take an age Facebook www.facebook.com Forward slash The Dukey Radio Show The Dukey Radio Show the thin white Dukey is right. Click your way to the Dukey Radio Show Facebook page. www.facebook.com forward slash the Dukey Radio Show. The Dukey Radio Show. The Dukey Radio Show. Well, that's your lot. John Taylor, eh? 
It's remarkable how discussing a dozen tunes can be so revealing about a person. And John is as engaging as he is talented. To find out more about his work, click your way to facebook.com forward slash punks soundcheck. And that's punks spelled with an X. You've been listening to our interview with John Taylor. My name is Dukey and I've been your host. May the worst of tomorrow be the best of yesterday. Now it's time for me to go and uh, <clears throat> pop my weasel. Thanks for listening. Half a pound of tuppenny rice, half a pound of treacle. That's the way the money goes. Pop goes the weasel. This next poem is called A Bag Full of Nose. Has it got all your correspondence from poetry publishers, mate? <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs>